welcome to Heineken Rugby Weekly on the 42.ie. You know the drill at this stage. Every week we bring you behind the lines with expert analysis, tactical insights and engaging conversation around the international and club season. Our expert analysts will ask the hard questions and answer any you might have each Thursday. We'll also have a feature interview with some of the biggest names and most interesting characters in the game. Ryan Bailey caught up with Tom Farrell for this week's show. And if you want to get more from that game, join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more. Visit heinekenrugbyclub.com and remember to enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit drinkaware.ie on how to do so. Gavin Casey here and I'm joined in studio by the 42.ie's Murray Kinsella. How are you, Murray? I'm very good. How are you? Excellent, thanks. Thanks for asking this week. And Andy Dunn as well. We've got you back, I don't know, six, seven weeks in a row you're here to stay now, I think we've established that. I'm going on holidays next week. Oh, <laughs> just so you know. It was too good to be true. How are you, Andy? You keeping well? I'm good. I'm admiring your uh, shaved off beard. You look a bit younger. It's controversial. I it's highly controversial. I walked into the office the other day and Nikki Ryan from the journal.ie said, oh, wow, you shaved your beard. God, that's, that's really brave. <laughs> and I thought about it for a while, and I thought, that doesn't say much about my face, really, does it? Uh, that it, it took courage to shave off my beard and, and uh, walk around barefaced in the uh, office. I think it looks good. Uh, I, I actually disagree. I regret it a lot. But let's talk about some rugby. Uh, there's so much to talk about, actually. Um, let's start with Ian Keatley. Uh, he's bidding farewell to Munster, as you actually broke the story, Murray, uh, a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago now at this stage, probably, was it? Yeah, um, I guess he's been, this is the time of year where everyone's negotiating. Uh, it looked like for him, Munster weren't going to retain him and obviously he hasn't played a lot of minutes at all this season. They have five out halves on the books and obviously you need to reduce that number. So Munster probably wasn't the future for him. Uh, there was a bit of interest from London Irish, I think, initially and, and a couple of other English clubs. But then Benetton came in with a, a good offer for him. Um, and it's probably one you wouldn't have expected, uh, particularly Irish players haven't haven't gone to Italy traditionally. You, you saw a couple of guys at Zebra uh, last season, but I think it's going to be a really good move for him. Um, uh, Benetton are going to lose uh, Tommaso Allen and Ian McKinley during the World Cup, during the Six Nations as well. So he'll get a lot of game time there. His experience is going to be important for that squad, I think, as well. They're building something uh, really nice over in Benetton under Kieran Crowley as well. Uh, and Ian Keatley can certainly add a lot to it with his experience. And he's just done a, a really good job for Munster over the years. Obviously, um, he will have his detractors and stuff, but he's the second highest point scorer of all time for Munster. Coming in after Ron O'Gara was, was never going to be an easy task, but he had some great days. I think that drop goal over in Sale was a particularly memorable one and just an absolute gent as well I have to say as a journalist he was a pleasure to deal with so I uh, wish him the best of luck over in Italy Absolutely yeah consummate professional Andy and I think even the detractors at times like these will sort of park some of those um, criticisms and can acknowledge that was a, a fine innings from him Yeah I think if to to echo Murray's sentiments first and foremost he's just a really good bloke and very popular guy I um, he effectively finished my career because I was the at the old guy in Connacht and he was the young young buck who was training the house down and uh, you know I, I got a insight into how professional he was at that age he was probably 20 21 um, and he was a brilliant professional in terms of his attitude his his uh, how he was even around the group and then how he contributed to the squad in terms of his effort alone um i think he he showed a huge amount of resilience and metal when he very i mean it's well documented and very unfortunate but getting him booed that time in Thomond um is probably a low point for monster supporters i'm sh- i think they're not overly proud of it themselves and um, for him to come back from that was was huge and it showed what he's made of um and it's nice to see him do something a bit different where i i think he's going to get lots of time as he said uh, italian rugby is building he will get regular game time with the two with alan and uh, mckinley involved w- with italy during the world cup he had a i suppose a high point of his career potentially with in rome with ireland uh, in a, it wasn't his first Six Nations start, mm-hmm. I think, and he had four four kicks out of four or five out of five. So he's he's had good moments in Italy already, um, and I I would wish him the absolute very best. I think he'd be one of the most popular guys in Irish professional rugby among his own peers. And uh, while he mightn't be, he might have detractors in the public. He doesn't have any in in his own peer groups. Fair play to him. We wish him the best of luck with the move. We will be talking about Ireland's Six Nations squad in a little bit, but some news this morning with England squad being announced. An incredibly strong squad, but Dylan Hartley will miss uh, the opener in Dublin with injury, knee injury. 
Yeah, we have a couple of squads now. Wales, um, obviously missing some back rows and, and Scotland with seven uncapped players in there. So plenty of fresh faces. Just on the England squad, Hartley is going to miss with, with that injury. They're thinking he might be back for their Wales game. So we'll certainly feature um, Owen Farrell, captain in his absence. But I think it's a really strong England squad. And you look at the Vunapola brothers being back, uh, Chris Ashton, Tuolagi as well. Dan Cole's back in after being outside for, for nearly a year almost at this stage. Um, and I think it looks like a really strong squad and Eddie Jones will be delighted to have all of those guys fit. Billy Vunapola in particular is a, is a massive game changer with his game line ability and obviously his, his playmaking ability. He's well able to pass and make decisions on the ball. Tuolagi has been getting a good run with Leicester and I just lo- love the way Ashton works so hard off the ball um, and his finishing ability is really well established as well. So they are going to be a really difficult task on, on that first weekend. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Andy... When you compare the squad that England have this year uh, to the squad that they had last year um, and all those sort of uh, faces that have come back into the fold that Murray mentioned there, like they're serious contenders, obviously, for the Six Nations, but even for an opening weekend fixture, they're probably primed, actually, to to turn somebody over. Yeah, I, I would, they're probably primed to do a job on us after the last two years in particular. <laughs> um, you know, when stopping them win a Grand Slam and then going over and ramming it down their throat and tweaking them on Paddy's weekend. They've got to be pretty uh, pent up about that. In terms of the the personnel specifically that Murray mentioned, Ashton back in, Vonipola's to Alangi. There's a lot of, um, that's the Stuart Lancaster squad actually, that was that was really really uh, dangerous up until the last World Cup. And a lot of key members and contributors of that World Cup squad were, which brought Lancaster and England huge success prior to the the fallout of the twenty fifteen World Cup. So um, there's plenty of experience there. Um, I think overall they look immeasurably stronger um, as an overall profile of their squad this year relative to last year, and. Um, a huge challenge for us in that first week. Uh, from the players' perspective, in I remember asking Jordan Larmer about it, and it's a bit of a baptism of fire to start with England at home in the first fixture. Mm. But it, it, I suppose it's it's like it's make or break in literally the first game. We've probably mm. had that in the past with like say trips to Paris and things like that. Well, but this is I don't know. How do you prepare for? You're not warming into it as such. No. Um, well, look at last year. Um, first up, France away, and had we lost that. History is different, you know, revisionist history we'd be talking about. But, um, yeah, there's there's no real prep for, for that game that, you know, Joe's bringing them. I think both squads are in Portugal doing a bit of warm weather training or off, off-site just probably to freshen things up. Nice, luxurious surroundings. And we're there for a week. They're there 10 days. But it's not like they're going to be able to replicate the intensity over there. They're probably just working around strategy, a bit of physical work, um, I don't anticipate they'll kick lumps out of each other down there, either squads. They're probably trying to rest, recuperate. They're in the middle, halfway through what has already been a tough season. I don't think they're going to go down there and replicate high intensity in training all that much, maybe one or two sessions. There isn't a prep for that for that Saturday game, in my mind. Mm. I just know they're not doing media days down in Portugal. Hopefully that'll come in the future a bit. Uh, but I just think with England going away and getting that, 10 days they're getting under Eddie Jones it's really crucial for them in particular because they're all as he mentioned in his, his press conference today they're all playing very different styles at their different clubs different S&C programs that aren't centralised like they are if you have so that's advantage Ireland I guess having said that Ireland are a little bit slow sometimes when they first come together for a new kind of uh, run of fixtures so um, there'll be massive onus on them to get up to speed quickly Does the broader picture as well um, of English club rugby um, in Europe really flagging badly you know propping up for the, for the European groups down the bottom and you know on the on the with Brexit in the background and the country <laughs> in a mess you know I'm sure they want to make a statement to just show they, their imperial nature we're, we're back <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll have to um, I suppose we'll have to do what we usually do then really they want to cross the Irish Sea and <laughs> Take us down again. Have we got eight hundred years for, of oppression? Have we got the copyright for a nation once again? There, we can get a sting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, come a long way since draping yourself in a yes, flag true, and true, making yeah. up for it. Um, <laughs> let's talk with the Ireland squad then. It, like 
38-man squad, three potential new caps, all of them from Connacht in uh, Tom Farrell, Jack Carty and Quaylen Blade. We'll be hearing from Tom Farrell in a moment as well. What are your thoughts, Murray, overall? Yeah, I think that's the story of it, really, is Connacht's uh, revival. We've talked about it loads on this podcast and for them to have five players in the squad is a really deserved recognition of that form. Quaylen Blade has really took, uh, taken his opportunity with Kieran Marmion injured, obviously, and the fact that John Cooney went to Ulster a couple of seasons ago has pushed him up the, the pecking order and he's certainly taken his chances. Very lively player, loves to play with the tempo that Connacht thrive in their game. Uh, the quick taps and the sniping game as well as being pretty brave defender and, and you need to be now in the, in the modern game. You can't carry a passenger at scrum half anymore. So he's been excellent. Tom Farrell, we'll probably chat about him before his interview, but he's been, again, sensational. I thought last season he was superb, although probably slightly under the radar at that national level he's just done it so consistently now and against teams like Munster you know a couple of weekends ago against a guy like Chris Farrell stepping up and, and really delivering a, a really prominent performance he's been brilliant I think with Jack Carty a lot of people have been talking about Ross Burns' exclusion and that's certainly fair enough but Jack Carty has again been so consistent this season he's played virtually every game for Connacht so he's really seemed to enjoy that run of fixtures and you're seeing that creative element of his game that he always had he's always had the vision you see his lovely grubber kicking his chip kicking um, that's being married now with really uh, kind of mature decision making um, and leadership of his team as well as some excellent long kicking and tactical kicking as well um, defensively probably still has improvements to make but uh, it's a deserved uh, recognition of his form um, and Alton Delanen is back in there getting ahead of probably Quinn Roo his provincial teammate but I think Delan has added that kind of explosive impact that we recognised in his game earlier on when he when he first burst through with Ireland and Bundyaki of course was a dead cert he's been really good for Connacht again this season and that midfield battle is going to be brilliant for Ireland Yeah can we talk about a couple of those actually like I suppose the one point of contention is uh, Carty over Ross Byrne and I, in fairness even Leinster fans I think are acknowledging that Jack Carty is full value for his position in the squad there's a kind of an odd juxtaposition in that Carty couldn't be described as fortunate for being in there and yet Byrne can consider himself I think unfortunate for being excluded even though one of them was likely to miss out. Is there a case to be made that given Byrne is is so capable now of of stepping in when required and has spent uh, the summer tour and November with Ireland, he's fairly well acquainted in that setup, that maybe you give Carty that same experience um, over the the opening two fixtures where you're not probably going to get much game time anyway. And if Sexton was to go down for whatever reason, Byrne can just slot in. But that maybe Byrne is is just um, used to the whole system and now it's a chance for for Carty to get a go of it. Yeah, well, Ross Byrne certainly won't be thinking of it that way, but I would say that you're quite accurate in that. Um, Byrne, I think he's been excellent consistently for Leinster. He's obviously sitting behind Johnny Sexton, so he's not getting exposure to all of the, the, the biggest games. I think, first of all, we probably have to recognise that this means that Johnny Sexton should be okay for the Six Nations. You know, I think there was a doubt possibly Ross Byrne would have been in just because he has that greater familiarity. The other thing is, we almost kind of presume that coming into this year, Joe Schmidt basically had all his, I guess, experimenting is the wrong word, but depth building done. Uh, this kind of proves that it's not done. You know, what if Joey Carberry gets injured, then Ross Byrne moves up the pecking order or Jack Carty moves up the pecking order. Who's in behind that? So he's adding another option to to his depth chart that way, which is which is really intelligent. Ross Byrne is, is definitely very unlucky. Um, he's been really developing his game with Leinster. We've spoken about how he's brought a bit of the kind of extra passing and decision making and challenging the line. And you saw him trying to do that against Toulouse last weekend. I thought there were little bits of inaccuracy in his game that maybe Joe Schmidt would have picked up some of the passing skill twice it went to ground uh, and he was a little bit um, standoffish in, in defence at times. Tackle, yeah. yeah, he did have that incredible uh, kick pass and he really is the king of that area um, and there were other really good aspects of his game but he's still learning as well so I think it's just a, a reminder to everyone as well that look, the, the door is not closed on guys outside the squad who would have felt coming into 2019 all oh, my chance is gone. Even the way Joe Schmidt mentions what do we say, 29 players in total? 29 or 30. If you counted the Connacht back three yeah. as three, then it's 30. Yeah, and Joe Schmidt, in fairness, tends to do this. He loves kind of listing off names of players, but I guess if you're not on that list, 
Can You're we probably go, a bit worried about? Can, can, can we go through the list, right? Just to just to actually reel <laughs> off the talent that hasn't made the squad, okay? Finley Beal and Marty Moore, Stephen Archer, Rob Herring, Dennis Buckley, Ed Byrne, Eric O'Sullivan, Quinn Rue, Gavin Thornbury, Fanine Wisherly. This is compelling podcast stuff. Kieran Treadwell, <laughs> Billy Holland, Dan Levy, Sean Reedy, Tommy O'Donnell, Luke McGrath, Kieran Marmion, Ross Byrne, Billy Burns, Rory Scannell, Stu McCloskey, Sammy Arnold, Rory O'Loughlin, Adam Byrne, Dave Kearney, Darren Sweetnam, Mike Haley, and the Connacht back three. It's um. There's a there's a 23 man squad to be found in there. Did Joe Joe mentioned all those? He name checked them all. Name checked all of those. Press conference. It's interesting. No press conference. He they don't do a press conference squad. They do press release kind of. Which I think is more is actually more interesting because clearly he was speaking to an IRFU employee. Like it was calculated. It was recorded. Right. He he wasn't just doing this kind of willy nilly. Doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything willy nilly. No, but as in you (laughs) at a press conference was calculated. Fair enough. But and he does this at press conferences where he'll name check players. But I think at a press conference you could get away with you know the likes of Gavin Thornbury yeah. or whatever but he yeah. literally named every single individual because he, he had the opportunity and time to do so and it goes back to what you were saying Murray I think if you're not named there you're probably in a little bit of trouble certainly this year I don't think you're in his plans yeah well at press conference he sometimes names players I'm convinced just to eat up time in the press conference <laughs> especially the opposition he'll list the whole opposition team and he's got great pronunciation of all the oh, yeah, Fijian guys that play, play for yeah. France and uh, so compliments to him on that. But yeah, I think you would be worried if you weren't on that list. But at the same time, he's saying, listen, we're still watching everyone. You're still in the mix because injuries, as we know, are always going to change it. Like you pick your possible Ireland squad, 31 man now. And realistically, like you don't want to wish injury on anyone, but three or four of those guys are going to be injured. That's yep. just the nature of the game. And, and you're seeing with even Scotland listed 17, on, I think it was 17 unavailable players. Mm. Guys who Gregor Townsend had in his mind and and wasn't able to pick, so that's the nature of the game. And yeah, for everyone, it's just a reminder to to keep uh, performing and pushing, and, and you potentially will come back into the frame. Exactly. And uh, you know, on that topic, I just wanted to touch briefly upon uh, Alton Delan, who you mentioned a minute ago, because I suppose like it's you know last year was difficult for him. Obviously, like he was in the Six Nations squad initially, and then uh, due to the the tragic passing of his mother, kind of had to withdraw. That probably hampered his his progress uh, during the year. And he was coming off the back of shoulder surgery as well the year before. And I I think I remember hearing about his mother uh, passing away, and you, you think to yourself, God, that's that's terrible. I remember the the Ireland players wore black armbands and things like that. But you probably don't take into consideration the impact that that actually has on somebody's life for a guy so young you know what I mean like and he had a difficult year last year but kept soldiering away he's he's rediscovered form quite recently he's uh, committed his future to Connacht and uh, now he's back in the reckoning and he'll probably be looking to make up for last time and, and put his hand up alongside Ty Byrne and James Ryan who've kind of risen to prominence in his absence you know he's nearly a kind of a forgotten man and yeah. now he's back in the back back mm. in the fold yeah and he's also like watching last weekend against Sale the way he stood out to me was in more defence uh, and even more going forward. Things like that, that he certainly had to improve in his game. He's always been a really explosive athlete, a really special athlete, even the, the shape of him. But adding the fast twitch fibre to that, he, it makes him quite unique. And he's always had that impact into the carry, has brought that more now to the tackle and also to those nitty gritty second row duties that no one really cares about, but are so important to coaches and to, to professional rugby teams. Um, So he's really developed nicely. Andy, I was just... Just on the second row, it's going to be fascinating because Ian Henderson is obviously back from his injury. It seems perfectly timed, the the way he got that operation done. Uh, same with a couple of other players just coming back into the fray. I wonder how you think that's going to go if Henderson potentially isn't match fit to go on the first weekend. Yeah, well, I, I think he'll certainly go with Ryan and Toner uh, on the first weekend, but much much the similar to Sean O'Brien coming back in, taking serious injuries, Um they're, they're the type of guys, I'm not so sure whether Henderson, he hasn't had as many injuries as the likes of O'Brien or Sexton, but they certainly, in, based on history and even looking at Robbie Henshaw last year, a lot of these guys can now withstand serious injury, surgical procedures, 10, 12-week layoffs, and somehow manage to come back and hit the ground running. Henshaw's performance in the uh, European Scarlet's game was phenomenal for a guy who'd been for a guy who hadn't been out it was phenomenal for a guy who'd been out 10-11 weeks it was freakish stuff in terms of how he hit the ground running his commitment to physicality um, given he'd had a shoulder injury I think O'Brien has that in his kind of toolbox and Sexton has that they don't need five games to to hit their straps I'm not sure with Henderson I just haven't seen him come back from significant injury 
maybe as quickly as the others. So I think he may he may uh, struggle to be included in the England game, but I think he's absolutely in Joe's reckoning right in there in the top three when he's fully fit. Yeah, I think the other one that you would have been probably surprised not seeing there was Dan Levy. He's just about yeah. coming back from a calf injury, but Joe Schmidt did give the indication that he'll probably come into the back row options once he's fully fit. So don't be surprised to see him in, in quite soon. I think even if he gets back on the pitch for Leinster, potentially coming in to train with the squad. And um, he's just lucky, I guess, Joe Schmidt, that Josh van der Fleer is playing such brilliant rugby at open side. Uh, for me, he'd be the first choice, I think, to go in and, and face England. He's been excellent, consistent, and fortunately for him, he's been fit this season as well, having suffered the disappointment of missing out on that Grand Slam. You know, he started against France in that away game. In Paris, I didn't yeah. realise, yeah and got injured in that game and didn't yeah. feature again so he's got some kind of lost time to make up for and is in brilliant form Jordy Murphy playing really well in Ulster as well so uh, Levy will have a, a job to do when he gets back fully fit On the back row there's a fairly loaded question here from Brendan Spearin uh, on Instagram he asks does Sean O'Brien deserve to be in the Ireland squad based on this season's performances? Based on this season's performances alone Probably not, but you're not just picking an international squad based on the most recent form. I know all coaches like to say they do, and and clearly with the likes of Carty, form is a factor. But with a guy like Sean O'Brien, who Joe Schmidt has been in huge games with for years now, um, and Sean O'Brien has always delivered for him in those huge games um, and been one of the most influential players on the pitch, I think it's pretty clear why he's picking him. And, And for me, if I was the Ireland coach, he'd be in the squad every single time as well, as long as he was fit, because... Yes, he's been unlucky with injury and yes, other guys potentially have better recent current form, but he's proven time and time again at that top level that he can stand out and actually dominate games. I always think of that home game against New Zealand in 2016, two weeks after Ireland won Chicago and he came back without much rugby at all um, and he had four turnovers, I think some really massive tackles and carries and, and again showed why the New Zealanders respect him so much. So. Yeah, it is, a, it is a concern that he's picking up so many injuries and even the, the returns to play are getting slightly delayed with little issues along the way. But um, in terms of leadership as well and, and that experience, that communication, all those things, it makes pure sense to me why he's in the squad. You touch it upon McGrath, um, USA 94, mm. you know, about Sean O'Brien now. He's got to be managed. He's a huge amount of mileage on the clock. He's had high impact injuries. His joints, are, there's no way they are what they were. Um, but it absolutely doesn't mean he needs to turn up every week and play well for Leinster to get in the Irish squad. It doesn't matter. He's the type of player like that who I would imagine if we can somehow get him available and fit in October 2019, he's probably going to start in the World Cup game, I would imagine, first World Cup group game. And if he can manage to stay fit or they manage him through that World Cup, you know, that's all we need to do with the likes of Sean O'Brien. I, I think the Kiwis, the Kiwis rate him as... Probably one of the few players, given Kiwi arrogance, that they would consider for selection in their own side, which seems to be their biggest metric for respect <laughs> of anyone else, is would we pick him on our team? And O'Brien seems to feature heavily in that conversation down in New Zealand, probably on the back of that Lions series where he was um, comfortably one of the top players, yeah. if not the best in that series. So, um, yeah, I think he doesn't need to, to answer the the loaded question, as you said, Gav. He, he doesn't need... Um, to show his form against Treviso away in order to get in the Irish squad. Yeah, know. enough credit in the bank, uh, say the two boys. Tom Farrell, you touched upon him there, Murray. Um, Andy, your own impressions of his progress over the last sort of 18 months and his inclusion in the squad, which I suppose of, I think out of the three Connacht players, given Marmion was injured and Luke McGrath was injured, Quaylon Blade's inclusion wasn't really a surprise and Farrell, I think, was probably a, maybe not a shoe-in, but it, it didn't come as a shock either. Like, he's in the mix now. Yeah, I, he's been excellent consistently, and he, as is often the case, people have short memories, and he'd, he'd what, you know, it was a televised game over Christmas that a lot of people watched in an Interpro derby, and suddenly it's, you know, overnight success. <laughs> how, how is the guy who's had 18 months of good form become an overnight success? It's like, like when Kylian Mbappe arrived at the World Cup, yes. despite having <laughs> moved for 200 million euro beforehand. Exactly. Yeah. I, but I think Tom's game has all the qualities you'd want in a in a centre. Um, aggression, He's he seems to make good defensive reads. He's he's physical. He's um, 
you know, he he's not just a one trick pony who can do one job. You you I think in recent years we've been guilty in in the northern hemisphere of going with you know have you got a distributor uh, who's small and light or you go with a big tank to carry the ball. You just seem to do one or the other. He's not, he physically somewhere in the middle of that. I think he's he can be a guy who'll make hard yards and run into contact if you need some go forward or the defence is very well organised. But he can also be a guy who's evasive and a guy who can distribute the ball. And the, the more people we have like that, whether he's going to push, I don't think he's going to push really for a starting place in Joe's mind in the Six Nations, but he's going to push the guys who are there mm. all the time. And that's how... That's how the Dubs have won a few All-Irelands in a row. That's how Brian Cody won stuff with Kilkenny when training was very, very intense and you knew the guy behind you was more than capable of doing the job or you're one injury away from getting out of the squad. Um, that's what makes us a strong international squad at the moment. And guys like Tom Farrell are going to be invaluable for, for Joe to push his starters and also... He'll grow in confidence from being in the environment. He'll familiarise himself with Joe's requirements. So there's massive value in his involvement. But like like we said, it's not been an overnight success for mm. Tom and a guy who's who's had to leave Ireland and, and work his climb his own way to that successful level with very little help along the way. It's very admirable. Yeah, he has that hunger, doesn't he? Like yeah. he yeah. was I spoke to him at the start of this season down in Ballina and Mayo, um and he just spoke about being in the Leinster Academy going through two, three years of it not really grasping his opportunity or realising possibly the opportunity he had then he goes away to Bedford in the championship and realises wow you know I'm kind of out of the out of the bubble of Irish rugby here six months later there's an injury crisis in, in Connacht and he goes and absolutely grabs his opportunity and it's continued to do so since and he has such a lovely little skill set even against Munster in that game you mm. saw it he's so good with those subtle kind of lines to outside a defender then banging off his right foot and big left handed fend always with the ball free looking for that offload as well so really interesting to see if he does get an opportunity somewhere um, to see how he fits into to Schmidt's plans Yeah Andy Friend was making the point to Darren Frell actually on Wednesday night that it never seems as though Farrell is running all that quickly but he seems to break the line constantly you know he, he, there's a kind of a gliding effect to it almost and um, There's a French kind of style to him and that the way he a lot of French centres of the 80s and 90s would would uh, swerve away from the pass before they received it, that type of stuff, as opposed to just being a, a guy who received the ball and then looked to do what they do. That French style and that gliding style of I'm going to I'm gonna faint or move in anticipation of where the pass might be or I let the ball cross my body, which beats the defender, and I catch it after that. There's a lot of uh, time on the ball kind of, you know, cliches you can say around it, but he definitely seems to have that that style about him which is not the most Irish thing you know so it's good to see it yeah, we're not necessarily known for our guile but let's uh, hear from the man himself he sat down in Galway with the 42's own Ryan Bailey we sat in this room the week before the season started and I think the big question for you was, was probably how you could maintain or build on your outstanding form from last season five months on you must kind of reflect on the first half of the season from a personal and a collective point of view fairly satisfied yeah um, to be honest I probably am happy with my personal performances and um, and that kind of comes from the team performance and how we're playing as a team. Um, I know we're not the finished article or anything, but we are improving. We're on a steady progression, and um, there is that upward curve, and it helps. It does help my game and the rest of the backs as well when we're playing that kind of positive, expansive game. Yeah, you've really, really been able to kick on here, haven't you? you? It's there's a huge buzz around the city, the province, the club itself, this building here. It's things are in a really good place. Yeah, definitely. Um, and to be, I think. A lot of that comes from a friend who's come in this season and he's he has he's built a good atmosphere around the place and around the sports ground when we come in every day and um, there's a good environment and boys are boys aren't just coming in and getting through their work and like in a monotonous fashion they're actually coming in here wanting to learn and excited about learning and looking to push on so it's good yeah, your own personal form how do you reflect on the first half of the season because you were talking inside about obviously being involved in Carton and those mini camps how do you kind of reflect on it it's obviously a huge confidence boost to get that to get that call as well yeah it, it is nice to get in there and um, get that recognition um, I suppose when you when you do string a couple of performances together and um, you kind of you do want to be rewarded and know that um, that it, there is a kind of incentive to push on further and something to work towards and that is obviously in the back of my mind um, to to get capped for Ireland. It's, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. Um, it's 
most players in the country want to be in that position. So um, it is in the back of my mind and it's something I am striving for, yeah. When you just said there, obviously it's a, it's a huge ambition to get capped by Ireland, but if we kind of rewind two years ago before you suppose, came here, it probably was the last thing you <laughs> yeah. in mind when you were hanging over in the Championship and having come through the Lancer Academy. Do, do you kind of look back on it now and, and as was laugh on it and, and think yeah. it's come a long way and it's a waste of time? Um, yeah, I, I probably have, I don't know, I have come away a bit, yeah. Um, no, when I went over to the Championship, like I went over at the aim of one day coming back is um, to play rugby in Ireland and obviously when I was in the championship um, playing for Ireland was probably the last thing in my mind my, my main focus then was just to keep playing as many games as I can and get that recognition to come back to one of the provinces and lucky enough Connacht were um, Connacht were good enough to take me on board Yeah the circumstances of that I know you spoke about it before there was a bit of an injury crisis here in Patlam yeah. I had a bit of a call to you you obviously came in hit the ground running did you kind of feel given what had gone before that it was maybe not last chance to for you but this was a, it was a huge opportunity that I suppose you needed to take Yeah exactly um, I think at the time there was there was only one or two fit centres at the time and Pat and Tim and Willie were good enough to to give me that opportunity and um Thankfully, I took and I haven't looked back since. Would you be a player that would kind of put pressure on yourself? So obviously, you came in on a short-term contract. Yeah, I was. But it hit the ground running. Yeah, that was it. Like it was, it was only a six-month contract at the time, and um, I suppose it was a six-month kind of prove it type thing. And I had to, I took it quite seriously, and I had to prove it, um, or else I was going to be out of contract at the end of the season. So I was, I was very determined. For you, was there was there a change in mindset almost there? You know, obviously playing in the championship, as you said, it's getting minutes under your belt, getting back to here, but now. When you get that opportunity, it's you need to knuckle down here and really take it. Exactly, yeah. But in the championship, it was it was good for me because I got so much game time. But again, when you come in here, it was just that next level step up and the speed of things and the intensity and probably the, the professionalism of it all. Yeah. Playing alongside Gundy obviously helps in a quality centre like him and Carl Goldman's obviously come in this season. So while you're doing obviously your job to uh, an excellent ability and you know really standing out, it, it helps when you've got quality players outside you as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose when when Kyle first signed, I was probably I was probably a bit anxious. My my spot was on the line, but it's, it's only pushed us on as me personally and collectively as a back line because Kyle's come in and he's. He's really added to the back line, really added to the team. He's he's very versatile as well. He can play right across the back line and he has really helped us out this season. Yeah. Those mini camps in Carton, what do you what do you learn from them? Because it is a short period of time you are in there essentially as a runner in training, but what can you learn from that environment? Um I suppose when I was in there I just tried to literally soak up as much of the 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 calls and the plays as I could. Um I didn't try to get bogged down too much with the the starter plays or anything like that. It was just more so general phase play and defence calls and just try to take it in as much as possible. Maybe sit some guys aside when they have their spare time and just try to get up to speed of things. And then I suppose also just, I noticed just the speed of the whole sessions and the intensity of them and just how um, how clued in everyone has to be and how switched on you have to be for that hour when you're on the pitch. It's, it's pretty intense. Yeah, I remember you spoke in, in November if you didn't get the call and you said that you know, John mightn't feel that you're ready at that particular time, but you kind of felt you're ready. Do you think a couple of months on that you are ready now, or, or where's your kind of thought process around? Um, uh, to be honest, I'd like to think I am ready. Um, it's obviously it's up to the coaches now to decide. Um, like I've I've played with and against um, international players now for the last probably two seasons. Um, I'd like to think I'm ready for the next step up, but um, I have to respect their decision also. And if they don't feel I'm right. I'm ready at the time, that's fair, and I'll just go away and work on what needs to be worked on. Yeah, it's obviously a big week for Connacht as well. Saturday, you know, knockout rugby is, is on the line when you go to Bordeaux. It's going to be a big challenge because Andy was speaking inside about, you know, obviously they're out of contention, but they've been quite good in the top 14 this season. So what do you yeah. expect from them? We know they're going to be strong no matter what side they put out. Like, French teams at home, you know, they're like, they're, they're proud. And I think their last game at home, they won by... 40 points against Racing, who are one of the top teams in Europe. So we know going over there, like it's going to be a serious challenge. And some of the individuals that they have in their their backline and their team are really, really high, are really, really high quality. So we're, uh, we're under no illusions going over. Yeah, and for you, every opportunity to get out there is another opportunity to show what you can do and, and really perform. Yeah, exactly. Um, we've only two games left now before um, a break, so it's probably 
potentially one or two games left before uh, before it, like, for me to showcase what I can do, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, it's been a good Christmas period for, for Connacht as well. Those interprods obviously disappointing defeats against against Leinster and Munster. The overall performance, and, and for you personally as well, the chance, as you said, to, to play against guys that you could potentially be coming up against in Ireland camp. Yeah, we were, to be honest, we probably would have liked to won at least two out of the, out of the three interprods. Um, it's just kind of come very close against Leinster, obviously, and to be fair to Munster, they were probably the better team on the day and they outplayed us, but um, we probably don't want to settle for just good performances and not the results. We want to kind of push on and we don't really be that team who are the kind of the pity team where people like to give them a clap on the back and you know what I mean? Looking ahead, I suppose, from now until the end of the season, for Connacht's point of view, you're in a strong position in the Pro 14 to push on now for the playoffs and then hopefully have knockout rugby in Europe to look forward to after the Six Nations as well. What Have you kind of sat down as a squad and, and looked at maybe what you can achieve now in the second half of the season? Yeah, definitely. We actually, we have, um, so we're playing obviously Challenge Cup this weekend and then uh, we've won get one round of Pro 14 left and then I think at the end of that week or the following week, we're just sitting down and regrouping and, and setting our resetting our goals for, the, for that third block of the season. But um there's some huge games in there for us where must wins like I think we have we've Cardiff Blues who are in our conference and then we've Ospreys and Cheetahs as well um, coming up so it's they're all massive games for us and probably season defining Yeah you can really feel the enthusiasm going around the whole city can't you not just on match day obviously sell out crowds here over the course of the interval period but just the whole city is getting behind you Yeah it is and it's great to see like it's we obviously had great support for the Interpro games but um, it was nice to see that it backed up when sale came came over last week we still had a good attendance and the crowd are here are always brilliant and um, they turn out every week prefer to them so we can't ask for any more yeah. and for you do, you do you have to reassess your goals as well from a personal point of view do you, are you wanting to kind of write them down at the start of the season have you had to rip those up since <laughs> no, I, I, my goals are still the same um, I haven't had to change anything um, we'll see in the next few weeks hopefully that, that they might be achieved brilliant Tom thanks man thanks very much Now, before we move on to all the provincial action and look ahead to the European fixtures at the weekend, a very special announcement for Heineken Rugby Weekly listeners. We will be joined on the 31st of January at Liberty Hall Theatre uh, by Simon Zebo, looking ahead to what promises to be an enthralling Six Nations Championship. Uh, we did a show there with Ronan O'Gara not long ago. It was, a, it was a sellout. We're expecting the same. Please help us out. It should be a really, really good night. Tickets are 20 euro. You'll also receive a complimentary copy of the 42's book, Behind the Lines, number two. So looking forward to sitting down with Simon Zebo and picking his brains about the Six Nations. Now let's talk about the Heineken Champions Cup and uh, the Challenge Cup as well because Connacht had a fine win in the end against Sale. Uh, we'll start... Let's do it chronologically again. It, it, it got us out of trouble, I think, last week. <laughs> uh, Munster and Gloucester, we, I suppose we expected to be a tough game for Munster. I think he both picked Munster to win the game. They were probably the form team. But in the end, it transpired to be a bit of a demolition job, really, didn't it? Yeah, it was certainly more comprehensive than most people expected. There was a great sense of confidence, actually, even from the Munster supporters over there before the game, which you don't always get, you know, there's always kind of cautious optimism, but there was certainly a lot of confidence based on those two wins over Leinster and Connacht, um, and deservedly so, and it, it certainly proved to be the case that Munster brought that momentum into the game, even, you know, in the second minute they find themselves defending a five-metre line out in Tyburn with typical destructive effect, um, helped by O'Mahony and Stander kind of driving through the side of that mall for a turnover that very much set the tone in what was a destructive performance, a, a very physically uh, aggressive performance from Munster. I thought their defence was really good. Obviously, that 35-phase passage shut out and also underlined the work rate from the players. Like, Billy Holland had 12 involvements in different tackles, you know, not as directly as a one-on-one tackler, but up on his feet, kind of assisting the tackle, driving in where those inches make such a, a difference close to the line. They did concede, but I felt it said a lot about Munster's mentality mindset coming into this game their line out defence as we just mentioned there was superb uh, and burn again at the breakdown uh, leading the way in that regard so those things for Munster are always the vitals they're the foundation for everything else that came and you saw that off the back of that uh, the rest of the game developed because their set piece platform was effective even for the Joey Carberry try where he uh, puts that beautiful left footed grubber through that was on the foundation of a good line out in four phases of, of play to set him up into that position a little 
pass from Billy Holland as well. Um, but it is exciting to see them adding that to their game. And certainly the back line now is humming uh, with a bit more energy, that confidence that's coming with the wins. Keith Earls uh, continues to grow as that kind of influence and phase play. And and Chris Farrell's ball carrying is just uh, adding a, a different dimension to them, even before Joey Carby's first try. You see him on that lovely kind of blind line that we've talked about a bit. Conor Murray skipping across the front of the, the obvious ball carrying forwards. And Farrell attracts in three defenders. And the next phase with, with Jean Klein running a lovely decoy line is that little bit easier. So it's really clicking together. Conor Murray's box kicking is still really important. Poor old Tom Hudson, in, in, fullback for Gloucester. Uh, there's There was one image of him. He picks up the ball and kind of bites it and then hands it back to Conor Murray. <laughs> Trying just, to puncture it. <laughs> he just couldn't get to grips with it. Um, and that was that was really important as well. Even just before the, the try, just before halftime, the scrum, it all comes from is from one of the Hudson errors in the air so really across the board it was an excellent performance from Munster I thought Gloucester were disappointing at that um, but yeah exciting times for Munster um, and even just how they're defending and um, clearly working hard for each other shows that the players really are buying into what Van Gran is trying to do yeah, for the first kind of 20, 25 minutes Andy, I felt it was actually tit for tat very even mm-hmm. and it just seemed as though Munster kind of squeezed the fight out of them or squeezed the life out of them even from a psychological perspective as soon as I saw the slow-mo of Peter Romani roaring come on for about yeah. 10 seconds I kind of thought yeah this game's over well the All Blacks are renowned for pulling away from teams later on having kind of broken their spirit by you know in the first 30 minutes the physicality it requires to contain a team to you know given every facet of their game was at a high level the scrum the line out the mall competition at the breakdown their passing their box kicking you know every part of their game that that is simple that requires execution was done with excellence and that's often the the apparent mystery around great sides like the All Blacks, they just consistently do it. And eventually, at some point, the weaker side will creak and give way and then the tiredness takes over and suddenly the floodgates open. And that was very indicative of of what happened, like you said, 20, 25 minutes of tit-for-tat, very close quarters stuff and not much to separate the sides, but suddenly quite a a margin by 80 minutes. it's the first time in my mind I've watched Munster for in the last two to three years where on Friday I just I sat back and I went, this is a team who's absolutely capable of winning the, the cup, winning it outright. And I think their how their squad is um it just some it, it either happens a bit by fortune, design, the combinations seem to be coming together brilliantly. And if you look at Murray, Carberry, potentially Scano, Farrell, uh, a multitude of choices in the back three, and obviously Earls is going to be involved um, in there. A lot of experience up front. Um, I spoke to Peter Coyle, who's kind of my scrum Jedi, uh, ex-Leinster <laughs> player, who would always, he's, he's talking about how, how really, really fearsomely strong their scrummage looks. And although they mightn't have the the glitz and glamour of a tight furlong, they're equally as good in the scrum, which is really what their job is. They've they've added in the likes of Tyg Byrne. They've got the the leadership and the you know the the guys have been around the group for for a long period, like the Billy Hollands, the unsung heroes. They seem to have this wonderful mix through that starting side that suggests to me they could quite well be champions this year. Um, and, you know, the likes of Carberry's magic dust, that left foot grubber is is just, it's hard to describe how good, I you know, that was. Uh, changing his mind on the run in with the intensity of a defence coming at him and putting in a left foot grubber with the level of accuracy he did. It was the imagination, the execution, the time he had to do it. When you add that to how all those other factors in, uh, among their squad, like great scrummaging front rowers, you know, and like I said, just that construct of a group, it's really come together for them and they look really dangerous. Yeah, they certainly do. Technically, how hard is that kick from Joey Carberry? It's, yeah, it's extremely hard to do. I mean, to do it without opposition is hard in a training <laughs> ground. Didn't he say Did, once that he's, he used to practice with his father and he'd uh, kick off either foot so that he'd yeah. be capable on his left foot? He, I yeah. saw a quote and uh, and during the week and then I saw this kind of big reaction about you know the armchair warriors kind of look just get over he's a professional he should be able to do it and 
look at all the other professionals who aren't yeah. able to do it yeah. and, and maybe measure your judgment on that because if it's that run of the mill nobody else does it so mm. he's or that's they're all hiding it for some special day that we haven't <laughs> seen it you know what I mean he's uh, he's got without doubt he's got a bit of magic in him and we've all I think we've always known that but seeing him knock over 17 consecutive place kicks on the back of criticism and Castro shows he's got it upstairs as well yeah and just how hard like that quote about the left footed kicking was actually an interview we did with him last year Jesus got a chance credit ourselves got a chance to sit down with him um, I thought and, it was sports Joe sorry and <laughs> yeah it had just been noticeable that once or twice over the course I think it was two seasons ago he kicked with his left foot um, and it just stuck in my head asked him about it he basically explained it's something he'd been working really hard on behind the scenes since day one with his father who's a really good coach Joe Carberry um, works with Leinster Rugby and, and does some schools coaching as well um, and just I guess the years of hard work are paying off you know we remember his first game in down in Musgrave Park against Edinburgh I think it was where he had that beautiful left footed touch finder as well and now he's starting to get the confidence to to really utilise the skill he's been working really hard on the place kicking one as well Johan van Gran has mentioned it several times after the game how hard he's been working on the kicking mm. as well and that's a really exciting thing because he is still a young at half um, but he's clearly working incredibly hard on all those aspects of his game. And if he can get to a stage where he's fully, fully confident of kicking off both feet, what a nightmare for the backfield defence for Ber the opposition. Bernard Jackman put up a video of, uh, he was my assistant coach in Harlequins, Paul Turner. Um, and he was literally the, the embodiment of the word Welsh wizard playing at 10. So he played uh, probably 10 to 12 caps for Wales in the late 80s. He came in when Jonathan Davies, who was from the factory of Welsh greats controversially went to rugby league and played for Great Britain and Widness and Paul Turner got a, a couple of caps at the tail end of what had been an amazing career but the video Bernard Jackman put up was Paul Turner playing um, club rugby he was on the old rugby special and he's placed kicking off either foot from either side of the field so cool. and it's just unbelievable to watch and I remember going to Harlequins as a probably a arrogant you know 23 year old and one of the first sessions he took me as a 10 and started working on, so let's have a look at your skills. Type of stuff you don't see modern day coaches do all that much. So he said, let's have a place kicking competition. So we went over on the left-hand side of the post with our right foot and away we went and knocked one one over each. Now he's about 45 at this stage and I was 23. Over to the right-hand side and he puts it down on the ground, no tee, no sand, straight on the on the turf. And pings it over with his left foot, and he says, "Now you do that." <laughs> and uh, you might as well like, have got home. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, but his question was, "Why can't you?" He goes, "I can. I'm 45. Oh, yeah. How long have you been a professional?" I'm at that stage five years, from the age of 18 to 23. But it shook me up, and I started working on my left way more then. So it's a valid question. Um, you know, it's great as Murray says, "How hard is it to do that?" It's extremely hard. But as a full-time professional, you'd like to think more guys will try and work on that side of their game. Yeah. You know? I actually think that it, those attacking kicks are probably one of the biggest deficiencies in professional rugby. Like a lot of backs mm. actually can't kick the ball. Like, yeah. Like I say, it because I was a disgraceful kicker whenever mm. I played. I just never learned the skill, never mm. put the time into it. Whereas now in the game, you're seeing how just important it is because if Carberry didn't have that left footed skill, he gets absolutely smashed by Billy absolutely. 12 trees, Monster lose the gain line. There's so many examples of where obviously it's easy to point out when you're not on the pitch but space in the backfield and the possibility to kick in behind guys just don't have those tools even for exiting their half even you see I don't know Will Addison under pressure with, with Ulster his kicking skill kind of failed him I guess a couple it, of times in, in a tricky wind albeit It puts such doubt in defence and particularly if a defensive system is a rush defence and a lot of rugby these days is about you know winning the gain line or the you know the tackle line so you'll see teams rush Gatland brought it in from rugby league with Sean Edwards absolutely sprinting up and coming from the outside in to try and stop uh attacks now if you've got a good varied attacking threat from kicking they just can't come up as fast and it puts huge doubt into that whole system or if they come up and there's a dainty little chip done over that you can regather or a grubber they start to lose their conviction in terms of this line speed and then you've thrown their entire system into doubt so it's a it's a massively valuable tool and then as a game, as a defensive system that gets broken and they don't come up as fast, you can pick them off by going around them or through them because they leave loads of spaces because they, they're in doubt. You're effectively creating doubt by being brave and using the kicks. Now, done badly, it's probably the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So it's, it's again, it's, it's, a, it's a policy of courage as well, you know. 
it's a little bit like uh, the play action in NFL. If you have a strong run game and a strong passing game, it keeps the defense honest. And they can't commit one way or the other. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And it, there was, I think, based on even those quotes uh, that he gave to the 42.e, uh, it was extremely <laughs> satisfactory, I thought, to, to see him just execute it so perfectly. And Munster probably, on a couple of occasions, just responded to Gloucester's scores as well, mm. which which probably... Uh, dulled Gloucester's confidence bonus point win they're in fine fettle um, looking ahead to Exeter very briefly and we'll get your predictions as well at the end of the show obviously but you'd have to say again that the, the momentum is with Munster despite the fact that Exeter kept themselves in the running with a fine win over Cast. yeah really impressive win um, and Munster will probably feel they're quite aware of what's coming you know uh, you'll definitely hear mentioned a couple of times that Exeter like to hang on to the ball and even the, the stats show that nearly 22 minutes average possession per game, which is like three or four minutes above where Munster are. They're really good at, at the ruck. They're really good with their ball carrying and their kind of skills on the ground after they get tackled. So the retention is really high and they'll often win penalties through that. Then they get down to your 22 and they're so effective in there. The mall is a really good weapon for them. They're brilliant on the pick and jam, building those little kind of pods of three uh, players all, all pre-bound pre and, and driving through the defender. As well as that, They've worked hard on developing the individual skill, I guess, skill base or allowing individuals to flourish in their attack. So you're seeing Santiago Cordero beat defenders for fun. Henry Slade, you saw his step and that beautiful grubber kick for Tom O'Flaherty's try last weekend. And obviously Jack Noel as well back. His his try was just exceptional in what the third, fourth minute. Picks from the base of the ruck, accelerates the footwork in behind uh, and just the strength to go through the last tackle he looks really really hungry so they're coming with I guess lots of weapons um, and it's going to be I think the game of the weekend um, so yeah without Peter Romani as well that, well potentially without Peter Romani it looks uh, concerning for Munster so um, it's going to be a, a tight one I think I, I do think the Munster though we'll get to the predictions but I do think Munster have enough there Exeter certainly coming with a bit of momentum though as well that's true yeah I said Munster have the momentum but really it only takes one game to build momentum doesn't it we discussed that with uh, Toulouse uh, last week and we will talk about Leinster Toulouse in a moment but uh, Connacht Andy uh, joined Sale at the top of the table mm-hmm. with uh, a difficult win over, over uh, the Sharks in Galway but uh, they got the job done in the end they did, and and my favorite thing, without a doubt, was just the fact that they uh, managed to stick it to Steve Diamond. <laughs> Probably the least likable person uh, in the world. In the say? world, potentially, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's about as much as I've got to say. <laughs> he, yeah, he's yeah. had a he's had he's, a it's joyful to watch it ram down Steve Diamond's neck. Yeah, <laughs> have you come across him? Yes, yeah, uh, many times actually. He was. He coached Sale when I was in England and then he had a long time away doing other things and, other, you know, he was a bit of a journeyman, but he was the Sale coach for um, a period of time when they were very successful as well um, with Jason Robinson and Shabal and these guys and I'm, that's, I'm haunted by those moments <laughs> to tackle or trying to tackle Sebastian Shabal and a screaming, angry Steve Diamond on the sideline cheering every time Shabal trampled all over my <laughs> creaking that's our young one. body. Yeah. You did an awful You've time of it really Andy didn't <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah I think I'm a bit damaged Did, you, did you enjoy your career? No It's <laughs> <laughs> always injured <laughs> Like Shabal yeah. For God's sake Yeah, yeah you can't But enjoy like that. in fairness to Diamond he's, he's He's stayed the course And he's still getting he results And he's still getting big name signings And they, Sale did have good uh, form coming into that So it is a, a, a good win for, for Connacht um, there were a couple of elements I mentioned Delan's mall defence the, the rest of the pack were brilliant in that area like Finley Bealham was really good mm. Masterson and Connolly coming into the back row to show there is a bit of depth there as well were impressive Bundyaki has just been brilliant for Connacht yeah. all season and again you saw him he was one on one battle with James O'Connor you'd go this is going to be a bit of fun uh, he, at one stage he smashes him with his right shoulder strips the ball out with his left um, and probably leaves a mark on O'Connor because a couple of minutes later down in the 22 Connacht were playing off a scrum um, and needlessly James O'Connor bites in on him potentially I'm going to get a shot back on this guy and just a lovely subtle pass to Kyle Godwin for his try um, the second try was really good defensive pressure I think that'll please um, uh, Wilkins, uh, Peter Wilkins the defence coach in Connacht mm. Delan putting pressure on and James Mitchell kicks the ball through and finishes it so they built a really good 17-0 lead I think they'll be disappointed with how they then managed the game and, and allowed sail into it there were certainly bits of fortune there and, and missed kicks from Faf de Klerk in a windy uh, atmosphere uh, as well as being on their own try line defending a mall 
in the last uh, minute as well Sale gave away a penalty and, and a bit of relief there so there were were those elements of possibly getting away with it I think they were frustrated was the word Andy Friend used afterwards and certainly it was a frustrating kind of game to watch it was very stop start but definitely I think Connacht last season probably would have lost that game they would have found mm. a way they would have given away another penalty or they wouldn't have defended a all um, and they would have lost so it's great for them to go into this last weekend looking like they can confirm a quarter final place and, and keep the momentum going they're, yeah. tur- they're turning not their best performances into results though which is not the traditional Connacht way yeah. um, which is brilliant the, the Andy Friend has managed to um, get that group so well oiled and so motivated that the, that type of not playing well but winning ugly doesn't tend to be the norm down there apart from the year they they went and won the the overall uh, the Pro 12 at the time but they are now capable of winning in different ways and different styles and grinding out results or playing with you know playing with great creativity or playing ugly and uh, that that seems to be the big change I think under Friend now is that consistency of results as opposed to consistency of performance without a reward Hmm. Um, which is a nice change for them and just the positivity as well yeah, like even yeah. his reaction to the guys being called up in the Ireland squad he's just refreshing he, he's clearly enjoying it. he's clearly buying into yeah. being in Connacht you can see now why David Newsfor wanted him into the system so much essentially tried to get him into Ulster first didn't Ulster didn't go for that and he, he ends up in Connacht and uh, he's been a, a really good addition to the Irish rugby system he's clearly buying into getting guys into Ireland jerseys and certainly the positivity is really refreshing Absolutely. Connacht joined Sale at the top of the table and they travelled to Bordeaux the weekend to earn their spot in the quarterfinal. We'll get the boys' predictions in a moment. Leinster and Toulouse, probably similar to the Munster game in that we had built it up as this titanic clash between two European aristocrats and Toulouse. We had spoken about the joie de vivre and, uh, you know, it kind of, I don't know, it looked a little bit like the Toulouse we'd seen over the last few years Mm. instead, um, maybe again, Leinster just kind of eventually gained the ascendancy and sort of stepped down in their throats a little bit. Yeah, it was a little underwhelming from Toulouse. I, I anticipated a pretty incredible game of rugby with two sides that were going to go out and and really challenge each other. And I didn't, you know, I thought it would be right down to the wire. But yeah, it was probably first time in a while that the Toulouse side, they, they had a, a couple of awful results in October. Then the, was it the Leinster game? I think actually helped yep. shape and turn their season and really kick-started. And going in, I think, 10 days before the Leinster game, 39-0, they beat Toulon. So, yeah, but they'd, yeah, they'd lost, what was it, 66-15, we said last weekend to somebody and then lost at home to cast... Then yeah, they had the Bath win and then Bath, Leinster, Bath, Leinster and then Freddie went Burns. on a real run yeah. and uh, as I was saying probably culminating in that 30, beating Toulon 39-0 yeah. a few a week or 10 days before the Leinster game and uh, so yeah it's probably the first time they've looked like the Toulouse of last year and the year before in a while but which was a bit sobering because I really thought they're, they're on their way back but you know they're going to have hiccups um, but I, I genuinely think they're Improving their, um, they're potentially still a real threat. Yeah, we know, sound like we're disappointed here. By the way, yeah, and it was I am big... disappointed. I loved them. I like, know, but, uh... but, but it was incredibly <laughs> no, impressive win for Leinster. Leinster to be yeah. fair, yeah. yeah. I actually, I, I actually enjoyed the game. It was different yeah. to maybe what we anticipated, but I thought it was uh, thoroughly well contested. Like Toulouse got a, I guess Leinster made a statement of what they were going to do defensively when Sean Cronin comes off the back of that line out, mm. takes a punt from tail gunner, makes a really good read. Um, as that guy just in behind the line out and absolutely levels Thomas Ramos who was an inexperienced out half he's not really an out half he's been playing full back most of the season um, and that was just a, a kind of reminder of you know it's very different when you're up in the front line and Tomacco's off his feet gives away a penalty and, and Leinster are down in the, the Toulouse 22 I think of Jack Conan I think it was hammering uh, Drum Kano at one stage there was obviously a defensive grandstand in the second half as well Toulouse opened them up a couple of times in the first 20 minutes. You know, Uge knocks the ball on twice and Ramos as well gave it away another time that potentially would have led to a really good opportunity. So I think the Leinster defence uh, deserves a bit of credit for that. Even when they were kind of breached, they they scrambled and, and made kind of um, offensive hits even uh, when they're not getting that line speed on. So that was impressive from them. As well as, again, this, their ability to, to grind to... To score, you know, the most compelling passage was probably that five was five minutes forty three seconds of ball in play at time at one stage, where Leinster didn't end up scoring. I think Marshan gets a turnover penalty, 
at the end but it reminded me of that passage in the Munster game against Gloucester as well where you just can't take your eyes off and you're almost kind of giggling that the ball's still going in, in play and, and they're just battering each other at times but I think Leinster given what they were missing with all those international players James Lowe as well um, it was just so impressive how they got it done it wasn't error free it wasn't perfect by any means but um, to, to score the tries they did and uh, finish as you say quite comfortably in the end I guess mm. it was just so impressive yeah, they travelled to Wasps at the weekend. Uh, Wasps probably don't have a huge deal of interest in, in the competition at the moment, so you'd expect Leinster to get the job done. Again, we'll hear from me in a moment in terms of predictions, but we need to talk about Ulster as well, who had a fantastic victory in their own right at home to Racing. This was actually arguably the game of the weekend, really, out of the uh, four Irish provinces. Connacht was exciting as well. Yeah, it was exciting. Um, I think Racing, if we're speaking about a French team, kind of disappointing than... I, I I thought Racing let themselves down a little bit in this game. Finn Russell, who's been brilliant all season, just had one of those games where everything just seemed to go against him. Kicks missing touch. Uh, at one stage, he didn't pass to Chavancy, who was clean through mm-hmm. outside him, which was a perfect time to score. They did get a try a couple of minutes later, but that, that was a, a big missed opportunity. Um, so they weren't at, at their best, but also Ulster, they're turning into such a good turnover team. Like could see at the breakdown, um, often... <laughs> bouncing in and landing on his hands and then getting back up onto the ball but just so uh, so so effective there and Rory Best seemed to have it in for Nakarawa it was he was chasing him around the pitch he, Rory Best was out in the 13 channel at times and he actually knocked two of the balls free you know Nakarawa with that um, very familiar offloading style the ball up in the air and he just swats the arm really good stuff from Best who was very hungry in this game and is really leading Ulster superbly so they deserve a bit of credit for stifling Rassing at times it looked like Rassing were just going to get away and at the end obviously there was um, a bit of a I guess a stroke of fortune where Vakatawa passes forward um, to, to Imov and the try is disallowed as well as that Ulster um, for, for Stockdale's first it did look a forward pass from, from mm. Ludic so there, there were those elements to it but like their set piece attack was just really, really good. Again, we mm-hmm. were talking about it earlier in the season. Everyone is nailing their role, um, and all three of their tries came from really clever set piece attacks. The first one was so simple, but subtly done, just creating a bit of space for Kutsia to carry over the top of Finn Russell, get your gain line. Then the defense is narrow. A simple skip pass, and Ludic manages to to get Dulan to bite in and, and feed Balakoon for his try on his uh, Champions Cup debut. So that element of the game will be really pleasing, especially for Dwayne Peel. Um, and they did make repeated turnovers. Like the defense mm-hmm. is far from perfect. They're still giving up some some line breaks. I think the one where Addison kicks uh, kicks kind of downfield, and him and Rory Best just get a little height to the touchline and racing break through there. Those kind of things will frustrate them. But um, defensively, the the turnovers are just just incredible. The, the way they're making so many of them. So yeah, they put themselves in a really good position. And for me, it was a good performance with, I guess, those little bits of luck involved. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, get to your predictions, but I've got a surprise for you, both. Uh, our transition year student, Ava Mooney, who's in on work experience, has gone back and listened to every podcast so far and Jeez. tallied your predictions. <laughs> that is and a heroic I, effort. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, it's been great having Ava with us and, uh, you know, let's keep count now so she doesn't have to do it again. But <laughs> I've got, uh, it, it, the, the margins are incredibly slender. This is a tense moment. It, it's incredibly, it's incredibly tense. Ava's just handed us uh, the figures here. Goodness gracious me. She had, uh, and we've made a pause of it with the bonus points as well, because some weeks we've had them, some weeks we haven't. But basically, here are the scores. Murray, you're on 34 points. Andy, you are on 32 points. Mm-hmm. Incredibly close. Yeah, so this could be, be nail this is a swing week. This is a swing week. Thanks a million for that, Ava. And uh, now it's time, guys, to... Uh, this is where it gets serious, really. And are we, or what are we doing <laughs> bonus points-wise this week? I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought that far ahead, frankly. Fair uh, enough. Yeah, let's just go with results. And uh, sure, if you want to throw in a few bonus points, by all means do. Um, let's start then with Ulster, who we were just talking about. They travelled to Leicester Tigers. Andy, over to you. Uh, I, I covered that Ulster game. I think they will win... In uh, in Leicester, I think they're um, yeah. I don't. I just don't see Leicester caring as much with a Premiership game the following week, given the season they've had to date, where there's massive um, 
a qualification at stake for Ulster would be huge to get into a quarters given the 18 months they've had prior to this season um, playing incredibly entertaining rugby and playing high skilled rugby and then a guy like for example Will Addison probably didn't mention who to me is the real deal in terms of skill level watching him live kicking off both feet place kicking kicking to touch when it went wrong for Burns distribution tackling um, strength and depth they had at nine with Shanahan to step in who did an excellent performance as well so Ulster to win in Leicester I I don't know do I have to give a scoreline or that'll no, do that'll Ulster do. to win yeah, I mean, I, you can just copy all of Andy's results for the rest of the season and you win. I suppose that's a flaw in our yeah, system here. A, a bit, bit of a fly in the ointment, but uh, make it exciting. Yeah, just I do, pick Leicester. I do think Ulster win because yeah. of those core guys who've been there for a couple of years just feeling they've been out of the playoffs for just far too long mm. for a big province. Um, and I think Roy Best's sheer hunger on the pitch typifies that. So I think they're going to win. Okay. Munster at home to the Exeter Chiefs. Murray? Yeah, I'm going to go for a Munster win at home. I do think that'll be a narrow one. And Exeter, worryingly, were for Munster were were in excellent form last weekend. However, I think Munster, particularly at home, another massive occasion at the home park. I'm away in, in England for for the two other games, so I'm a little bit jealous of that. But yeah, I think it's going to be a brilliant occasion and Munster win. Yeah, we're going to send Ava down to cover it and Thomond instead of you. I think, Mary. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Ava. <laughs> Andy Munster, Exeter, same Munster win. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Leinster away at Wasps. Andy. Leinster win uh, with the bonus. Fair. Right. Yeah, I think Wasps are in a tricky place. Um, they're losing a couple of players, although they did make a pretty cool announcement for Malachi Fekitoa. Did you see the thing on Twitter? They did like a Jurassic Park kind of skit where they put the faces over. It's really well done. Have a look. Um, but they're losing players, and it looks apparently Elliot Daly as well is on the, the way out, uh, close to joining Saracen. So it's a worrying time for them. And Wasps just haven't got anything going this season really consistently. So I think Leinster will be able to win strongly there. Okay, and Connacht away at Bordeaux Begley. Yeah, I think Connacht will also get the job done. Another clean sweep for the Irish province, I think. Um, again, it, there's so much on the line there for Connacht in terms of getting that knockout game. Bordeaux have been in, in good form under Joe Worsley, stepping in there uh, as interim head coach and doing a good job, but I think it'll be a clean sweep. We, we have a difference, yes. I think Bordeaux are going to win that. Oh, <gasps> interesting. Just yeah. French team at home. Yeah. Just going to wake up and decide they want to play well. <laughs> <laughs> on a whim a chance for Andy to claw one back God knows what the uh, tension will be like next week if there's only one between you thanks gents that's all we've got time for thanks Gav we will speak to you next week Murray and we will speak to somebody else next week in Andy's seat because apparently holidays are a thing now in January we'll no, miss you enjoy we'll miss you Andy <laughs> have a good time uh, just you. before we wrap up as well just want to wish the best of luck to Stephen Ferris and uh, Shane Byrne and Mike McCarthy and the lads who are climbing Kilimanjaro for the IRFU Charity Trust. Uh, I'm sure you can follow their journeys on Twitter and uh, hopefully we'll have a couple of them on uh, at some point on the flip side. I'm sure they'll have a few stories for us. Mm-hmm. And a reminder as well that we have got a very special event looking ahead to the Six Nations with Simon Zebo at Liberty Hall Theatre on the 31st of January. Tickets are €20 Euro and you can get them uh, on the 42. There's a link there that you can follow through. You'll also get a copy of the book as well. The winner of Behind the Lines Volume 2 this week is Brendan Spearin. So we'll be in touch with yourself, Brendan. And that is pretty much it. Uh, just a reminder that if you want to get more from the game, join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more. Visit HeinekenRugbyClub.com and remember to enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit drinkaware.ie on how to do so. Enjoy all the rugby over the weekend and we will catch you next Thursday. Take it easy. Thanks.